Welcome, listeners, to 2020. It's great to be back. So damn great. For those of you wondering where I've been for the past two weeks, I've been in Singapore. Yep, hopping from mall to mall, going to day and nighttime zoos, walking about 20,000 steps a day. I'm puffed out just saying that. And enjoying the parks they have there. They have some of the best wildlife parks out there. I spent my last week with family and friends during New Year's and ate what I felt like was my entire body weight in ice cream, ribs and seafood. It's been a crazy fun year for me, and especially the podcast. Patreon supporters supporting the podcast with iTunes reviews and monthly donations from $1 through to $140 per month. Support that I simply would never have guessed would be heading my way. And always grateful. A level of appreciation that has always bewildered me every time I think about it. So, I am late, but Happy New Year to you all. And let's listen to new creepy tales, brand new remastered old-time radio episodes, and kick it like we always do. Creepy yet comfortable. Today, folks, I have for you two old-time episodes remastered very carefully from the Black Museum series, hosted and narrated by Orson Welles, who I call affectionately Orson Welles. A show broadcast in 1952, a series focused on the ordinary household items used for murder. <laughs> Based on Scotland Yard's collection of weapons and murderous yet seemingly ordinary items, with a true crime background. This showmates is often remembered by a tagline. The Black Museum, a repository of death here in the grimstone structure of the Thames, which houses Scotland Yard, is a warehouse of homicide where everyday objects, a woman's shoe, a tiny white box, a quilted robe, are all touched by murder. 40 out of the 51 stories in this series are tied to true crime. I wonder if you can guess if today's stories are true or false. Episode 1, Bathtub. Episode 2, Black Gladstone Bag. True or false, mates? Now, before I start, I want to thank my loving Patreons that inject this show with creative octane. My podcast's fuel. My two Ode Night Tea Titans. Matthew J. Bauer, the bathtub wrangler who just upped his pledge further. This guy's support is endless and amazing. Plus, it's always great to come back to your comments, Matt. They're always so lovely. And Maya, another titan of the ages. Maya, the Gladstone bag of holding, whose generosity is as deep as the bag I just mentioned. Thank you both for your support. You help this podcast immensely. This year, I get to plan some more amazing mini-projects for this podcast, all thanks to you. Once I get the foundry back and boiling, you'll be the first to hear what's being produced. And my two lovelies that are my white tea warlords. I own cows, he who hooves behind closed doors. Try and say that one quickly. Your email before I went off to Singapore had me in stitches with laughter. You always crack me up. Thank you for your support. And Lee Bauer, Nosferat who? Thank you for your support, mate. And your great taste in TV series is something I can't wait to incorporate into my artwork piece that is being designed just for you. Thank you both. And for my white tea warlords and up, you'll be receiving artwork pieces designed and drawn by artists from all around the world to be placed on the podcast website and given to you to do as you wish with it. Print it, create stickers out of it, entirely up to you. And every single Patreon supporter I get to know. So I make rewards specifically for each of you. Yep, it's personal. <laughs> And now I must thank my Earl Grey enforcers. Chad Warren, Just Heather, Lorraine Crisanto, Paige Marcini, Peter Raffelli, Michelangelo Yacone, and Robert Fisher. You keep the flame in my heart brewing. Thank you all for your support. It means the world to me, mates. 
Now I know it's a long intro, and I'll cut to the chase. I know what you're here for. Some awesome old time radio episodes. So now turn the lights off, the sound up, and get ready for something special just like you. Like the bad penny. 
Why, I was hoping against hope I'd find you any minute. I went back to our place, but you'd gone. A new landlady, no information. What, what happened, darling? You never wrote. I waited and waited. Yes, I... It was an accident, darling. Blow on the head. Amnesia. Only a few days ago, I came back to myself. Oh, oh, my poor darling. No matter, darling Annie. We are back together. Once again, we are husband and wife. So that's the little game, is it? A wife in every city, is it? Well, now, Mr. Edward Jones, what's the idea? What can this get you, besides a heap of trouble and stiff prison sentence? What can it get you? There we are, Anne, my dear. I've signed mine. Now you sign yours. You see? Ladies are first, except in getting off trolley cars or signing wills. <laughs> oh, Eddie, you are sweet. There we are. Now, oh, heaven forbid, anything happens to you, all you have is mine, and vice versa, if anything should happen to me. Heaven forbid, Anne, my dear. Well, apparently it can get you plenty. If your wife has plenty, and Anne was, well, decently off with a needy income from her father's estate, although she's not allowed to touch the principal. However, there was a proviso concerning her husband's rights. If and when. I'm horribly upset about it, Doctor. Here she is, apparently in perfect health. She has an awful fit and all she remembers about it is a slight headache. She's my wife, Doctor. These things happen, Mr. Jameson, I can assure you. Oh. So Eddie Jones is Eddie Jemison hereabouts. Ah, interesting. Nothing. I found absolutely nothing physiologically wrong with Mrs. Jameson. She's in perfect physical health. Now then. But how can I be, Doctor, when I have these terrible fits? There are such things even we doctors don't know yet, my dear. Such as the reaction of the human mind to great stress. And you've been through such stress with Mr. Jameson missing so long. But what can we do about it, Dr. Margotson? Oh, just rest, relaxation, quiet, peace. Most important relaxation. Now I'll prescribe a mild sedative. Each night before sleeping. So simple, so easy, so diabolical, and so considerate. No, Anne, darling, you mustn't even fetch your own bath water. There we are, almost full, and nice and warm. Just like to relax him, just as the doctor ordered. Oh, Eddie, I don't know why you do all this for me. I don't do half as much for you. You do, darling, just by being. You know that, don't you? No, I say it a hundred times a day. Eddie, you're sweet. All right, my dear. Now, step in. I'll help you. Take care. The water may be hot, and the tub may be slippery. There we are, dear. Is that hot enough? If you think so, darling. Oh, you're the sweetest. Oh, I wonder how I had the luck to marry you. Part of my job, dear. Taking care of you. And one day soon we shall have a tub with taps. One of the new ones. You'll see. Ready to sit down, darling? Quite a pair of lovebirds, Anne and Eddie Jamison Jones. No wonder the poor fellow could hardly contain himself some 30 minutes later. I went out for a minute to make the tea. Doctor, how could she go so quickly? It is strange. But certainly an accident. I, I barely turned my back, just put some water on in the tea kettle. And when I returned, there she was, floating face down in the water. Doctor, can't you help her? Calm yourself, my boy. Your wife is past help now. <laughs> Such tragedy, such tears, and a will by which Eddie came into something over 800 pounds. In 1910, that was a fair amount of money. Enough for a man to live on, wife, for quite some time. While he read Shakespeare alone. A quiet guy. Shall I compare thee to a summer day? Thou art more lovely and more temperate. Rough winds do shake the darling buds of May. 
and summer's lease at all too shortly. Ah, Evelyn, how you stand for me for all my absences. I hardly know. I suppose I love you, dear. You are nice. And you're a good provider. So until you come back, I'm always content to wait. Go on. Sleep some more, darling. Yes, Papa. Nor shall death brag thou wanderest in his shade, when in eternal line to time thou goest. So long as men can breathe, nor I can Nor shall death brag, the young man read aloud, but where were his thoughts on his next trip? On the story he would invent, and which story, to which woman, is ever faithful Evelyn or young Libby, whom he took to wife some two months later. So this is the bride, Mr. Jameson. This is Mrs. Jameson. Isn't she lovely? Oh, Eddie, stop it. We're only married a few hours, and you're embarrassing me already. My deepest apologies, darling. Are our quarters ready? Oh, they certainly are. I'll let my boy help you with the bag. It's not every night we have a prize and groom in this house, you know. <laughs> no, not every night. This promised to be eventful indeed. Particularly if you knew Eddie Jensen Jones. Oh, Mrs. Brandy. Uh, yes, Mr. Jameson. I hate to bother you, but could we have enough hot water for a warm bath? My wife hasn't been well. Some kind of spell. Oh, Mr. Finn. She went to a doctor yesterday. Oh, yeah. And so young she is. Nothing serious. Just needs relaxation. That's what the doctor said. She insisted on going through with the wedding, even though I thought it might be better to postpone it. So a good warm bath. Nothing quite so relaxing, is there? I'll set the fire going right away. Oh, yes. Garia da Capo. Repeat the theme. This time with a variation. The variation was... Uh, a bag of tomatoes. Oh, Jensen, I can hear you go out. I just ran out while my wife was in the tub and picked up some tomatoes. Fried tomatoes are her favorite dish. And I thought, well, tonight or all night, she ought to have them. If you don't mind fixing them, Mrs. Randall. It would be a pleasure, Mr. Jensen. I'll have them ready with your dinner, never fear. Libby, darling, I'm back. Libby! Libby, are you there? Good heavens! Mrs. Brandy, help! My wife! My wife is floating face down in the tub! She's dead! My wife is dead! And today, we will see that same bathtub. Black Museum. Yes, the girl was dead, floating in the bathtub, face down, just as Anne before her. And Eddie, he was stricken, heartbroken as a bridegroom ought to be. My poor Libby, to die alone like that on her wedding night, so good, so sweet, so eager for life, and so in love with me. Even insured her life for me just before we married. As if she had a premonition almost. Seven hundred and fifty pounds insurance is a comfortable sum. Man and his wife can live in their garden quite decently with a sum like that for quite a few months. In 1910. But it seems one can grow a trifle bored. Even with a garden. In Shakespeare. How do you feel now, dear? Slight headache, that's all. It'll go away. Evelyn, you've got to go back to the doctor or find a new doctor. A slight headache. That's how your fit started yesterday. No, he's not trying the same thing again. But he seems to be. 
Percy's had two quite successfully accidental deaths in his life so far. Perhaps a third? But that's not possible. Or is it? Almost ready, Evelyn? In a minute, dear. Better come while the water's hot. You know what the doctor said about relaxing? Hurry now, darling. It's steaming, but not too hot. All ready, dear? All right, dear. There's not that much hurry. Yeah, who's that now? Wait for me, darling. I'll help you get in. The tub may be slippery. One day we'll have a modern tub with taps and hot and cold <laughs> running water. You'll see. Now, don't try to get in without me. All right, dear. I'll wait for you. Yes? Are you Edward Jones? I am. We're police officers from Scotland Yard. We have a warrant for your arrest. The charge is murder. I must warn you that anything you say may be taken down in writing and used in evidence. Please come quietly. Now, Evelyn Jones never took that bath. She never had another fit, either. Though she sat in the courtroom for the entire trial. The trial of the Crown versus Edward Jones. Also known as Edward Jemison. Your Lordship, gentlemen of the jury, this is a peculiar case. No one saw this man commit the crime of which he stands accused. Yet every circumstance, every bit of evidence points to the fact that this man stands justly accused and deserves proper punishment. Now, in the course of this trial, you will hear many things about love, about coincidence, about accidental... Oh, yes, they heard many things, that jury, sitting so stiff and serious-minded in its box. Not the least was the opening of the famous defense counsel who held the brief for Edward Jones, also known as Jemison. Nor will we deny that this man may have married vigorously, but he did love these poor women. And it was a far, far better thing he did in marrying them than to lead them astray and then leave them alone with remorse, as so many men have done before him. We deny that my client killed these poor women... We claim only that he was the victim of a set of circumstances and the interference of a busybody. Yes, a male busybody. A male busybody? Well, perhaps, but how could a policeman in the proper course of his duty fail to check on so obvious a coincidence? Yes. We had a letter at Scotland Yard from a Mr. John Curtis. What were the contents of that letter, Sergeant? Mr. Curtis had noticed a brief announcement in the newspapers regarding the death of a young woman, a bride, by drowning in the bathtub. He wished to call our attention to a similar accident some time before. In both cases, the name was Jemison. You saw this letter yourself? I did. Is this the same letter? It is, sir. I offer this letter in evidence, Your Lordship, as Crown Exhibit A. It went on like that, slowly, carefully, plugging all the holes as they went along. The details of a routine police investigation which suddenly had become a little more than routine. Sergeant Mason, when you visited the scene of the first drowning, what did you learn? That the man known as Jemison had mentioned two wills. One by himself in favor of his wife, one by his wife in favor of himself. We checked the files of the probate court. The latter had been probated. We called on the lawyer involved. He had a copy of the other will. The man known as Jemison had no property to bequeath. The deceased had had quite a bit. And when you visited the scene of the second drowning, Sergeant, we learned that the man known as Jemison had mentioned an insurance policy in his own favor. We inquired of all the insurance companies and found the records. He had received some 750 pounds following the death of the young... The first point established. Motive. Money. Over 800 from Anne. 750 from Libby. Almost 2,000 pounds in all. That's a substantial motive. Questioning of Sergeant Mason went on. Now, in the matter of tracing this man, Jameson, what did you do? Just routine, sir. We checked the mailing address at the insurance company and found it to be the same as the house where the second woman had died. There, we discovered her forwarding address, a postal box. We covered that box. I watched it myself, sir. And when this man known as Jameson came to open it, I followed him. He went first to an antique shop, then to his home. Having located him, I made some quiet inquiries and learned that he was known as Edward Jones. Well, that evening, having communicated with Inspector Wilson at the yard and having received a proper warrant, 
We placed him under arrest. Very good, Sergeant. Now then, when you called upon Edward Jones, what did you find? The woman who claimed to be his proper wife was waiting upstairs, sir, for him to help her into a hot bath. <laughs> One further question, Sergeant. Is the man you arrested in this courtroom now? Yes, sir. He's the prisoner and the doctor. Thank you, Sergeant. Thank you very oh, much. Oh, they've been very thorough, all right. They handled almost everything. They called Dr. Margotson, for instance. Dr. Margotson, when you first saw Anne Jameson, what was her complaint? That she'd been having fits and not remembering them. Did she tell you this herself? No, her husband did. He was quite insistent on it. Did you find any symptoms of illness, sir? I examined the woman very thoroughly. I found nothing. But that situation is not uncommon in certain types of epilepsy. Now then, Doctor, when you were called to the house on the evening of June the 3rd last, what did you find? The woman I had examined was floating face down in the warm bath and quite dead. The husband was extremely hysterical. I treated him with shock. Did you sign this death certificate? Yes, that's my signature. What is certified as the cause of death? Accidental drowning. We offer this certificate in evidence as crown... They have the landlady who knew Libby Jemison, too. She testified, simply. Oh, yes, sir. He moaned about the insurance policy. Cried all night, he did. Bit by bit, piece by piece. Motive, opportunity, proof of death by drowning, medical evidence. But one great piece of the puzzle remained. As the distinguished counsel for the defense asked. Well, blood is the proof. That these two regrettable deaths were anything more than coincidental accidents. Wormelodge is the witness who saw my client hold these poor women under the water or administer sedatives which caused them to faint in the water or in any way contribute directly to their miserable death. There was no witness. But there was a Scotland Yard inspector with a demonstrable theory. If it please, Your Lordship, Three bathtubs have been entered in evidence as Crown Exhibits C, D, and E. Inspector Morris Wilson of Scotland Yard has a theory which he wishes to demonstrate as a witness, and he requires the assistance of an expert. Millard... Inspector took the stand, was sworn in. Then, to the amusement of the spectators, a young lady in bathing dress, testified to as an expert swimmer, was introduced to the proceedings. One of the tubs was filled with water, warm water. At this point, the prosecutor stated, For the assurance of the court, we have a doctor in attendance. Now then, Inspector, if you please, you may leave the witness box and proceed with your demonstration. Thank you, sir. It is our considered theory that the murders were committed as follows. You will remember that in each case, the prisoner reported he found his wife floating face down. It is reasonable to assume that had the women fainted while sitting or lying in the tubs, they would have been found floating face up. With this in mind, it occurred to us that with the prisoner's insistence on helping his wife into the tub, the procedure was something like this. Uh, may I, young lady? Of course, Inspector. Notice she is standing in the water. Now, prepare to sit down, please. Observe that she bends forward. Grasp the side of the master. I seize her ankles thus, and she falls forward on her face.
Eddie swore to kill her. She fled to Canada when Eddie left prison that time. She came back to England and was in the courts. The day Eddie Jones was sentenced to hang. And now, until we meet next time, until we meet in the same place, and I tell you another story about the Black Museum, I remain as always obediently yours. This is Orson Welles, speaking from London. The Black Museum, a repository of death. Here in the grim stone structure on the Thames, which houses Scotland Yard, is a warehouse of homicide, where everyday objects, a package of cigarettes, a length of string, a linen napkin, all are touched by murder. It's a Gladstone bag. It's a familiar object. Every railroad train carries several, inevitably useful, compact, and expandable. They always hold more than they seem. Perfect for vacations. Perfect also for... If you look inside, Inspector, just uh, pry the two halves apart at one end, as I did. Yes, I see. Well, odd objects to have in a valise. Not if one had every intention of disposing of them, Inspector. <laughs> Today, that Gladstone bag can be seen in the Black Museum. From the annals of the Criminal Investigation Department of the London Police, we bring you the dramatic stories of the crimes recorded by the objects in Scotland Yard's Gallery of Death, the Black Museum. In just a moment, you will hear the Black Museum... Starring Orson Welles. The Black Museum, starring Orson Welles. And here we are in the Black Museum, Scotland Yard's mausoleum of murder. There are times, as I open this door, you know, that I feel the old familiar inscription should be carved on the lintel. Abandon hope, all ye who enter here. Yes, abandon hope of peaceful, quiet, dreamless sleep. For within this room is almost every instrument which ever has been used for the commission of the foul deed called murder. Yes, here lies death. No doubt about it, you feel it in the dull, oppressive atmosphere. You see it first marked calmly on the neatly lettered cards. So-and-so died by this instrument at the hands of so-and-so, dated, and so forth. Your glance passes to the thing itself. You almost feel the blood. Here's a camera. Ordinary tourist snapshot-taking camera. Yet within the blackness of this box, the film registered two faces. A third person saw a print. And from that recognition, three people died. One by a hangman's rope. Here's a briar pipe, well-smoked, thoroughly discolored, a pleasure to a pipe smoker, but no pleasure to the man who inhaled hydrocyanic gas with his tobacco, nor to the killer, trapped by the pipe itself. Ah, here we are, the Gladstone bag, piece of luggage for a man. It looks so commonplace, so much as if it belonged to a traveling salesman, not to Jim Hudson. Of course, in a way, Jim was a traveling salesman. He certainly had a sales talk. And he was quite successful at it. Sally, I've never seen you looking lovelier. Oh, Jimmy, you always do that. Do what, sweetheart? Say things like that, just when I want to pick a fight with you. <laughs> That's one of the reasons I love you so much, despite your wife and everything else. Everything else? That's what I wanted to fight with you about. We... 
Well, we just can't go on like this, Jimmy, darling. Why not? We're as happy as circumstances. Don't you see, Jimmy? A woman wants at least a snatch of domesticity, not just clandestine meetings with the clock ticking away her happiness in the background. It'll come, darling. The girl was right, of course, from her point of view. Granted that the relationship between her and the man she loved was, well, outside the recognized bounds. Granted that they found each other when it seemed too late. Still, the girl was right. She wanted a certain sense of security which can come to a woman only through the small things of making coffee in the morning while a man was shaving with an earshot. And Sally James was the kind of girl who took action when she wanted something badly enough. Jim, what about the week we planned together for this spring? I probably could get away, darling, if we had a place to go. I have the place. Anyway, the ad about it. You are something, aren't you? Here, darling. I found this in the Sunday paper. Go on, read it. For rent. Bungalow. The beaches. Pevensey Bay, Eastbourne. Reasonable by the week. You've got your heart set on this, haven't you, sweet? Can we do it? The week of April 12th. All right? All right. Oh, Jimmy, it'll be heaven down there by the sea. Heaven by the sea. Poor girl, one of those human beings who believes with all her heart that dreams can become reality. Perhaps it was just as well that Sally didn't see her gym some two evenings later in a quiet little restaurant not more than three blocks from the place she'd given Jim her precious clippings. Rhoda, my darling, I've never seen you looking lovelier. Oh, come off it, Jimmy. That kind of romancing just isn't in my style. You're a woman, aren't you? Well, you ought to know, Jimmy boy. And how? Thanks. Look, Rhoda, I've taken a cottage at Pevensey Bay. Oh, how inconvenient to have to travel all that distance. Not for weekends, it isn't. Inconvenient. Well, the daring young man on the flying trapeze. <laughs> Would you like Weekends by the sea, Rhoda? Why not? Seems be fun. Nice place. Called the Beaches. Old garden, private bathing beach. Sounds marvellous. I thought you'd like it. Well, I can't make it this weekend. Neither can I. How about the weekend of the 16th? We'd go down Friday afternoon, come back early Monday morning. There's a very early train. It's a deal, Jimmy. It really is a deal. Clever rascal, Jim Hudson, without a doubt. Knows his way with the ladies. But he cuts his margins rather close, doesn't he? Note the dates. April 12th, the week, with Sally. Friday the 16th, with Rhoda. That's hardly a full week with Sally. But, of course, Sally doesn't know about this on Friday noon the 9th as she stands in the doorway of the railway carriage in Waterloo Station. You will be down by Monday, won't you, Jimmy, dear? Sooner than that, if I can. You know that, darling. I guess I feel like a little girl on her first trip alone. I'm sorry it has to be this way. Oh, I don't mind, really. I'll have a chance to put the cottage in shape. Have it all clean and comfortable for my man. When I saw it, there weren't any tools there. And there's always something to fix. I'd better add tools to my shopping list. Oh, and don't forget the traveling iron I asked you for, dear. And please hurry to get down and... Oh, kiss me. Quick, Jimmy, the train's leaving. Oh, Jimmy, dearest. Bye, darling. See you Monday. Monday it'll be. Take care, darling. Take care. Watch him as he walks up the platform. The train is already disappearing from the track. Jim has his hands in his pockets. He's whistling merrily. A man with nothing on his mind except his love affair and the prospect of the week ahead. He leaves the station, walks up the street a ways, pauses before a hardware shop. What was it he added to his shopping list? Oh, yes. Tools. He enters the shop. May I assist you, sir? Yes, yes, I think you can. What do you wish? Uh, you've got some fine-looking knives in the window. May I see them? Any particular blade size, sir? I think... Um... Yes, yes, the ten-inch carver will be about right. Very well, sir. There we are, sir. Best Sheffield steel. Hollow ground, razor sharp, and guaranteed to hold temper. It will take very little honing to keep the edge, sir. Mm, very efficient looking. But do you prefer the bone or the plastic handle? 
Bone, I think. Very good, sir. Is there anything else? I think, um, yes, a, a small cross-cut saw. Small, about 18 inches? Excellent quality, as you can hear. Good. Would you wrap them, please? But then that will be six and four, sir. I'll just make up the slip. You'll have your package in a moment. Jim Hudson took his package on the train with him on Monday morning. And tea time at the beaches, Pevensey Bay, promised to be exciting and wonderful. This wonderful, Jimmy. I discovered the path to the top of the cliff on Sunday. Oh, Jimmy, it's paradise. It is a nice view. And so alone, so private. This is our private view, darling. It's, it's like a honeymoon. You are a sweet little thing, Sally. Very sweet. I know. When you call me sweet, you think of me as a child. But I love you as a woman, Jimmy. I know. Shall we go back now? It looks like it may kick up a storm. If you want to, darling. Whatever you want. Whatever he wants, Sally. But does he know what he wants, this man with a wife in London, you at the beaches, and still a third woman waiting to join him just four days? It's too bad the beach isn't sand. Oh, I don't know. Shale isn't bad. Funny about this place. Funny? How, darling? Do you remember the Doris Clark case? Who was she? She's the reason the beaches was available. I don't understand. She lived here. Two men she knew came down. She was beaten, buried alive in the shale. The men hung. How horrible. They made a lot of mistakes, or they mightn't have been caught. People shy away from a house with that kind of a story. I don't care. We'll change its reputation, then, with our love. Let's go inside, dear. It's getting chilly with the sun gone and the storm coming up. The storm came, the rain pounded on the roof, the wind lashed at the sea, and within the cottage called the beaches, all was snug and warm. I love a fire in a fireplace. Don't you, Jimmy, darling? Yes, I suppose I do. Oh, Jim. Am I being too sticky, sentimental? Trifle. What's wrong, Jimmy? You've been, well, far away today. Sally, let's face it. Things like this never go on for long. Jim! Jimmy, I don't believe you said that. I did say it. I mean it. Then why did you bring me down here? It was your idea. I went along with it, hoping we could work something out. Work it out? It's past the... You just... You never loved me. Stop crying. I can't stand crying. I ruined my life for you. Now you want to just forget about me. Stop it. Grow up. You can't be infantile forever. You want your cake and to have it too. You want your wife and other women. You won't. I won't let you. Stop it, Sally. I told you to stop it. No. No, I didn't mean it. I'll do whatever you want. I'll go away and never see you again. I'll... Jim, don't touch me. Jim, please. Jim. Jimmy. The scene was set, save for one vital piece of evidence. A black Gladstone bag, which can be seen today in the Black Museum. In just a moment, we will continue with The Black Museum, starring Orson Welles.
And now we continue with The Black Museum, starring Orson Welles. Friday, the 16th of April, dawned fine and clear. A calm, gay Jim Hudson made his way, whistling as usual through the weekend-bound crowds of Waterloo Station. Well, here you are, my good man. <laughs> Glad you think I'm a good man. <laughs> I am. Uh, well, I think you are. <laughs> By Monday morning, I'll know. <laughs> then let's make that train, baby. Pevensey Bay on number seven. The train to Pevensey Bay was none too fast for Jim and Rhoda. It was a fine spring day. It was a beautiful spring evening. The moonlight made the rollers on the beach gleam with a lovely phosphorescence. On the porch of the cottage, known as the beaches. Know something, Jimmy boy? I know lots of things, old girl. What, for instance? Oh, this. If I were the romantic type, this place would make me go all gooey. But you're not? No, I'm not. All your misconceptions of women notwithstanding... And you want to waste all this moonlight and romance? Oh, come, darling. If you must whisper sweet nothings, come and whisper them. Why not out here? Because I don't feel comfortable on the shale. Come on now. Always let the woman have her way, particularly after she's cooked a beautiful dinner. Here now. I'm the only beautiful thing around here this weekend. And you are, Rhoda. You are. What a way you have. In here, darling. No, no, not in there. It's a, it's a spare room, not made up. I want to see it. Oh, nothing in there. Are you going to deny me anything, darling? It's locked. I... Uh... Oh, Jimmy. No. Say, what are you? Bluebeard or something? Maybe I am. <laughs> The door stayed locked. The weekend at Pevensey Bay was quite successful. But now, the scene changes to a London street lined with somewhat shabby buildings which house somewhat shabby offices. Into one of those buildings, a woman hurries almost furtively. She climbs the stairs, one flight, walks into an office, door of which announces in gold lettering, Cross Detective Agency. You are Mr. Cross? I am. What can I do for you, Mrs.? Uh... Mrs.? Uh, oh, my ring. Yes, an old trick. Uh, you sit down, won't you? Thank you. My name is Lillian Hudson, Mrs. Lillian Hudson. I see. Well, how can I help you? I, uh, I want some information on my husband, James Hudson. Go on, please. I saw your advertisement. Were you formerly with Scotland Yard? I was. Advancement seems slow. I'm working for myself now. Yes. Well, I have reason to believe that my husband has been, well, seeing other women. Oh, and you want me to get the evidence? I think so. A divorce action? Perhaps. It depends on the results. And you want to stay in the background? For the present. Oh, have you anything on which I can start? An address? Lead of any kind? I have this. A baggage check. Waterloo Station baggage storage. Stamp 10 a.m. Friday, April 16th. An innocent bit of baseball. Where did you get this, Mrs. Hudson? I took one of my husband's suits to the cleaner. This was in a pocket. The cleaner gave it to me. Oh, and why should this mean anything? Because Jim, my husband, was away the entire week of the 12th until the morning of the 19th. It came to me, if he had told the truth, how could he have checked something at Waterloo on the 16th, if he were out of town all that week? Yeah, an interesting observation, Mrs. Hudson. Well, suppose I go over to Waterloo Station and pick up whatever was checked there. Oh, and uh, <clears throat> sorry to mention this, but uh, it is customary to have a retainer. Private Detective Cross, once of Scotland Yard, went on over to Waterloo Station and presented the baggage check. A short while later, he arrived in the office of Inspector Henley. The yard. Oh, yes, Cross. I remember you now. Ah, oh, thank you, Inspector. You were with us once, weren't you? Yes, sir. 
<laughs> you know, there are times, Cross, when I wish I had the gumption to strike out on my own. Too late now, however. And there are times, Inspector, when I wish I'd stayed on here. However... Yes, to each his own, and the grass is always greener, and so on. Well, Sergeant Anderson said you wanted to show me something. Oh, yeah, this. This Gladstone bag. Hmm. Looks perfectly normal. Locked, I see. Yes, if you look inside, Inspector, just uh, pry the two halves apart at one end, as I did. Yes, I see. Odd objects to have in a valise. Not if one had every intention of disposing of them, Inspector. You're probably right about that. Seems like some sook or something. And badly stained. If I were a gambling man, I'd give ten to one the stains of blood, sir. And it wouldn't be much of a gamble. Any ideas on what the metal objects are? Well, I flashed my penlight in there, sir. One is a carving knife, and the other is a carpenter's saw. I see. How did you come into possession of this bag, sir? And Mrs. Hudson found the check for it in her husband's pocket. She says the cleaner found it. I doubt that. Divorce action, I assume. Correct, sir. I understand. Well, my suggestion is this. We'll give you another stub. Give it to Mrs. Hudson and have her place it in her husband's pocket. When he comes back with the bag, we'll have a man ready to pick him up. It seems to me this little matter bears further investigation. So simple, so quietly effective. Just place a check for baggage in a man's pocket. When he comes to claim his Gladstone bag. Yes, sir. Oh, here's my check. It's a brown Gladstone. Left it three days ago. Just a moment, sir. Sergeant Anderson, sir. Yes? It's the check you've been waiting for, that fellow there, whistling. Thank you. Give him the bag. I'll speak to him. Yes, that's my bag. Oh, that'll be two and six, sir, for overtime storage. Oh, here we are. Thank you, sir. Glad to oblige. Uh, excuse me, sir. You James Hudson? That's right. Who are you? Uh, Sergeant Anderson, Scotland Yard. My credentials. If you would be good enough to come with me. What for? Uh, Inspector Henley would like to see you. He's waiting at the police station, just a block or two from the station here. Well, I've got my bag here. Couldn't it wait tomorrow, or...? That's all right, Mr. Hudson. I'll carry your bag. The squad room at the police station near Waterloo was very quiet. Inspector Hanley sat behind a battered desk. On the desk rested the Gladstone bag, open now, and next to it a file. A familiar dossier from the criminal records office. We have your file, as you see, Hudson. I see. Theft, burglary, five years for criminal assault. Does your wife know about these things, Hudson? No, she doesn't. I see. Hudson, how do you account for the contents of this bag? I, um... I was butchering half a steer for a friend of mine in the country. He has a deep freeze. Oh, that's rather thin, Hudson. Did you wear a silk dress size 10 to butcher the steer in? It was his wife's. I'm having it cleaned at a special place I know of. Yes, yes, of course. Better try again, Hudson. There was no answer. There were no further questions. Inspector Henley knew his man. Time ticked away. The clock was quite loud. For an hour, it ticked in silence. Finally, the perspiration began to bead his forehead. Jim Hudson began to talk. All right, Inspector. I'll tell you. I I guess I lost my head when she flew at me. Oh, size 10 and she flew at you, Hudson. I told her we were through, that I was going back to my wife. She heaved the coal scuttle. Then it... It was at the beaches at Pevensey Bay on April 13th, sir. She grabbed the poker... I defended myself. We had a devil of a struggle. She fell, struck her head on the andiron. She was dead. I must have gone completely crazy. I, I went into town, but, but that knife and, and the saw, I was afraid to tell anyone. I mean, my record. And... He said in this bedroom, Sergeant. I've got something here, Inspector. In this biscuit tin. Yes, you have. Neat packing job, I must say. Not much left of the poor girl, is there? I want a check of every hardware store in the neighborhood where Hudson lives. Uh, oh, yes, near the railway station. Got that, Sergeant? I want the sales tip on those implements and the clerk who sold them, if possible. Yes, Inspector, I remember the incident perfectly. The fellow came in whistling, asked about the knives in the window. 
He bought one, then asked for a small saw. Here's the slip, sir. Well, this says April the 9th. Hudson claims he didn't buy these things until the 13th. It was the 9th, Inspector. I'll stake my life on that. It's no good, Hudson. You bought that knife and that saw on Friday the 9th. You went to Pevensey Bay prepared to do exactly what you did do. If we ever had evidence of premeditation, we've got it now. You're under arrest, charged with willful murder. And I must warn you that anything you say may be used in evidence. Each clue in its place. The case was complete. Closed as tightly as that same Gladstone bag. Which can be found today in the Black Museum. Orson Welles will be back with you in just a moment. person is Orson Welles. There was no question about it. Jim Hudson, despite his claim, the usual claim of accidental death, was convicted of homicide and sentenced to the brief but final walk at eight o'clock, one winter morning. On the scaffold, his feet bound, the white hood already in its place over his head, the rope with its knot of thirteen coils around his neck, Jim Hudson lunged forward, trying to escape the trap. The executioner pulled the lever, the trap fell... Jim was pulled backward, striking his head against the wooden flooring. He may have died before the rope had its customary effect. However, Gladstone bag is still to be found in its customary place in Scotland Yard, in the Black Museum. Till we meet again next time, in the same place, and I tell you another story about the Black Museum, I remain, as always, obediently yours. The Black Museum, starring Orson Welles, is presented by arrangement with Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer Radio Attractions. The program is written by Ara Marion, with original music composed and conducted by Sidney Torch. Produced by Harry Allen Towers. My lovelies, I hope you enjoyed both the Black Museum episodes, the bathtub slip and slide of death, as well as the trickery of the Gladstone bag. Mates, I'm going to bring you some creepy tales this Wednesday, and then try and wrangle some Let's Not Meet stories for you this Friday, which are true tales of people meeting really crazy people and living to tell the tale. Plus, you know me by now. I handpicked the best ones just for you. Ones that I believe you may not have heard of. And if you know someone out there who's thinking, Mate, I wish I knew what podcast to listen to. Send me to them and I can cure what ails them. Or at least I hope. (laughs) And as always, mates, till next we meet.